I had a look at that video um, yesterday and I was certainly very moved by it. Um, Eric Abraham, who was the third speaker on that uh, little video, he was the one who had his hair eaten by rats. He, of course, was the very last uh, digger to remain alive. He died about, um, I'll be about a 10 years ago now, but he, he lived up on the Darling Downs, Eric Abraham, and um, a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, so we heard him there. And Hill 60, of course, that was referred to in the video, that was made into a movie about three or four years ago. Has anyone seen the movie? Yeah, um, I've seen the movie twice, actually. It's a um, pretty decent movie, isn't it? But uh, fancy surviving the conditions. And I guess, you know, um, as Jeanette mentioned during the communion message, we live in a free nation. And uh, we actually live in a nation where we're free to criticise our nation, as many do. But the freedoms that we have were very hard won. And they didn't come easily. So I want to spend a little bit of time today in our discussion point, just reflecting on Anzac. And I'm going to refer only to the First World War, but of course there have been many other wars, both before and since. The uh, photo that you can see up there on the screen now is a photo of Queensland recruits. It's pretty difficult, of course, to make out any individual faces because the quality of the original photographs is not all that high. But there were over 400,000 Australian men who enlisted. It was nearly 420,000 enlisted and uh, almost 60,000 lost their lives. I want to take a little look at some of the um, data in a few moments, but um, it wasn't just the men who went to war who were instrumental in what happened during that period of time from 1914 to 1918. Back in Australia, of course, women and children also made significant contributions. And uh, the photo there on the screen, there's actually two photos there. Uh, the top photo shows women who are actually making shirts and vests from rabbit fur. Of course, it was very cold in the European theatre of war in the wintertime and uh, the soldiers indeed needed uh, warm clothing. So that, that was a photo of um, clothing being made from, from rabbit, rabbit fur, which is a nice warm fur, by the way. But um, also, of course, many of the people who stayed at home were involved in, in knitting socks and scarves and so on to bring comfort uh, to the men who were fighting. The, the bottom photo there is a photo of canned goods that had been donated by children at New South Wales schools and it's the women of the Red Cross who were sorting those out and they made those up into packages that they sent across to the men who were fighting in the various theatres of war. My grandfather, uh, Leslie St Hill, was in the Light Horse Brigade and he was stationed in the Sinai. Uh, that photo there is of members of the Light Horse Brigade. My grandfather's not in that lot, at least not as far as I know, uh, but bringing Turkish uh, prisoners of war uh, back, back to camp. Uh, my grandfather was shot twice uh, in the Sinai, but it was really sickness, it was malaria that um, took him out of the war 
eventually so many of the soldiers were um, discharged with illness rather than uh, wounds from the war because there was so much disease that existed in the theatres of war. My grandfather's brother was a farrier and uh, there were eight million horses or more used during the war and uh, particularly in Europe there were lots and lots of farriers required and uh, this particular photo is of farriers in France and that's where my great uncle, my uncle Stan, was, uh, was stationed during the war and um, he used to tell lots of stories about how difficult it was uh, to shoe mules because they're very stubborn animals and won't do anything that they don't want to do. I'm going to show you some figures now. I think some of these are going to stun you because I, I don't know that when stories of Anzac are told these days that many people focus on the enormous cost that was born around the world, not just by the war, but in the Spanish flu that ensued straight after the war. So there were eight million soldiers who died. That's on, on both sides. We're talking about four years here. Eight million soldiers died. Uh, something like six million civilians. Sorry, no, I, I can't read it. No, <laughs> nine million soldiers. 8 million civilians, 8 million horses. Now, I, I haven't seen the horse ca casualty until um, I was doing some research on this. My grandfather, of course, being in the Light Horse Brigade, loved horses. He was a man who'd come off, off the land. And he told me that the worst thing was that at the end of the war, most of the guys actually shot their horses. They couldn't bring them back to Australia because of the diseases that existed um, in the area in Europe and in Egypt and so on where they were operating. They weren't prepared to leave the horses in the hands of the locals because they felt the locals were really cruel people and they'd seen how they dealt with animals and they just weren't prepared to leave their horses to that fate. So most of the men shot their horses before they came back to Australia. So virtually all of the horses that were used in the war were killed, 8 million. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. Casualties, those who were not killed but who were wounded or who um, uh, became sick and had to be discharged and so on, 28 and a half million soldiers. I mean, it's, it, it's difficult to imagine, isn't it, the scale of the cost of this war. The war left five million widows, nine million orphans, 10 million refugees. It cost at least $250 billion in today's dollars, in today's Aussie dollars, the total cost of the war, $250 billion. I mean, we, we can't really even imagine amounts like that, can we? But worse than the war by far was, was the impact of the Spanish flu, so-called because it was a strain of influenza that first struck people in Spain, hence it was named the Spanish flu. Now, we don't know exactly how many people died 
during 1918 and 1919. It affected mainly people between 20 and 40, which is very unusual for the flu. It's usually young people and older people who die from the flu, and thousands die every year even now. But this flu attacked mainly 20 to 40-year-olds, perhaps because of their, they'd been in the war, their resistance was low perhaps, and uh, they brought the flu home with them. So the flu came to Australia, to Canada, to the United States and particularly to India where there were more casualties than in any other country. And one of the reasons why the estimates are between 20 and 40 million is that a lot of people weren't really registered in, in India so their deaths weren't even recorded. But the death toll from the flu was far greater than the war itself. In fact, it was the second most serious pandemic in the whole of human history. The only one worse was the Black Death or bubonic plague and that raged for about 20 years in the 16th century. This was just two years. The total cost of the flu was at least a trillion dollars Australian in today's terms. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? Absolutely mind-boggling. This is what human beings do to one another. This is what the depravity of the human heart delivers. And you know what? The major nations that were involved in the war were actually Christian nations. At least they were nominally Christian nations and you would know from stories told in the past that often cousins were on opposite sides because there was so much intermarriage in Europe. And yet somehow the world came totally unstuck politically and such a dreadful price was paid by so many and so many who were innocent. One of the things that I'm curious about is what was the church saying during this time? What were people like me saying to their people when they had the opportunity from their pulpits on Sunday mornings? Well, as it turns out, there was a book published in 1917. Its title was Christ and the World War, I've got a few pages that I've copied from a facsimile of, of the book. And this book, it, let me just read to you a, a really interesting um, part in the introduction, which explains why the book Christ and the World at War was written in the first place. And, and uh, it's actually a collection of sermons. It says, this book is produced in response to a definite request from a neutral country in Europe. doesn't say which country. Thoughtful men in that country wish to know what is the normal religious outlook of Christian folk in Britain as expressed through the responsible leaders of the churches. Now, I actually want to read for you a fairly long extract from a sermon delivered by the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
and I do apologise that it's fairly long, and as far as I know, it doesn't exist at all, whoops, in recorded form. The Archbishop of Canterbury took as his text Ephesians 5, verse 16. So we'll just pull that up and we'll read it. Ephesians 5, verse 16. And I think we probably should read verse 15 as well, just to get context. Um, yes, I think, I think that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, Ephesians 5.15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So the Archbishop took as his text, Ephesians 5. 16 and he focused on the idea of redeeming the time so i'm going to read from his sermon and let me tell you it's a lot longer than any of our discussion points are so i guess back in those days people were able to sit still for much longer periods of time than we're able to do today so this is the archbishop of canterbury who's the head of the anglican church it was known as the church of england back then I beseech you to walk worthy of so great a calling. That's our calling to being Christians. You are witnesses for him, for Jesus, in a world which for the most part knows him not. Rise to that call. You have a ceaseless battle to fight against evil of every kind. It is a battle between light and darkness. But you can wage and fight and win. Go forward, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Redeeming the time. The Greek words have been variously translated and explained. Surely the most straightforward and literal meaning is the best. Redeem the time. Claim the present for the best uses. It has got, so to speak, into wrong hands. The days are evil days, but you can redeem them. Buy them back into what is good. To do it, you will need thought. It will need work. It will need sacrifice, but it is possible. Therefore, it is right. So he, that is Paul the Apostle, told the men and women of the Christian society in those great cities nearly 19 centuries ago, so he tells the men and women of the Christian society in England today. And verily for us too in this year of grace 1916, the days are evil. How can people who are sufficiently earnest and public spirited to care about the matter and sufficiently intelligent and educated to think about it and sufficiently Christian to pray about it, how in short can you to whom I speak redeem the time just now? First, we must try to understand why and how the days are evil and how they became so. How did a war like this, greater in scale and more sanguinary, we don't use that word anymore, more sanguinary in character than any the world has seen become possible among nominally Christian peoples? How? For that should be our primary thought 
have we ourselves been in the past years partly party to the growing mischief? Are the horrors of these tremendous months uprooting or withering what there was in us that was amiss? Or are they leaving it baneful as before? Can they possibly be even accentuating it? We were beyond question lovers of peace. But if the ideal to which peace contributes and for which we seek peace and ensure it is simply the undisturbed enjoyment of the good things of life, then the love of peace can hardly be called either robust or meritorious. It was finally said a few weeks ago that the religion of peace cannot hold its ground unless it is prepared when the occasion arises to transform itself into the religion of strife. That such occasions do arise is a fact written large in all moral experience. They are the moments familiar, I suppose, to most of us when a man must say to his soul, fight now, fight to the uttermost, resisting it may be even unto blood or peace shall never visit thee any more. That was a quote from a sermon that was printed in a particular journal in April of 1916. They occur to communities also, but at rarer intervals. They are the moments when nations and empires are put to test, when they must prove by the tenor of their response what vocation they have in the moral order of the world or whether they have any vocation at all. When this happens, religion uncovers its other face. The peace of God which passeth understanding summons its partner in the education of the soul. The strife of God which passes understanding too. Let no one therefore deceive himself or herself with the thought that a mere hatred of strife can or will by itself amend what has been amiss. A, pacif a pacifism of that sort may be the very opposite to redeeming the time. Out of the horrid crucible of war there must emerge, nay there is already emerging for those who have eyes to see, a truer knowledge of good and evil, a more keen appraising of our standards of conduct as peoples or as men and women. We are seeing, as some of us have failed to see clearly before, how perilously easy it is for the noble plant of loyal patriotism, if it be wrongly nurtured, to, de to degenerate into a coarse and baneful tree, and the sight of that catastrophe will put us on our guard, lest in thought or word or vote or song about the empire and its power, we let the ideal of a great trust for the good of all get coarsened or degraded to a rougher shape or a lower level until the things which should have been for our will can rightly be for the world's will become unto us an occasion of failing. Redeem the time then, for the days are evil. I want to focus on that thought. I've never written as eloquently as the Archbishop. We don't even write in the same style today. But we know that today we're living in times of great evil. You know, of course, there are wars. There are actually wars going on. And uh, wars in places like Iraq are actually themselves costing hundreds of billions of dollars. 
perhaps not so many lives lost, but a lot of property destroyed. The equipment used in war now is very, very expensive equipment. So there are still plenty of wars going on. But let us never forget that we are involved in a spiritual battle. We're involved in a battle against the forces of evil arraigned against us. Satan sends into every nation his demons to influence policy and to influence the way in which policy is carried out. Uh, we ourselves as Christians face opposition from many quarters in our society, not the least of which is in our parliament, where there are many people now who would prefer to see that we didn't exist at all. It's going to get more difficult for us to live our lives out as Christians publicly into the future. So today is a day that we need to remind ourselves to redeem the time for the days are evil. And what does it mean for us today? I don't think it literally means that we should be taking up arms, not at the present time at any rate, but we should be readying ourselves spiritually. This is our most important weapon. And we cannot use it unless we know what it contains. So this is a rally call to know the word of God and to know the promises in his word and in particular to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is returning. As so many people have said, we know what's in the back of the book because ultimately, you know what? Good does win out over evil. Ultimately, Jesus Christ will impose the victory that he won at the cross on all who live in the earth. We reminded ourselves just one week ago of the meaning of the resurrection when we celebrated Resurrection Sunday here. We reminded ourselves that Christ defeated death through his death on the cross and through his being raised to life again three days later. We were reminded, particularly as we took communion last Sunday, of that wonderful expression, to tell us die. It is finished. Jesus Christ had finished the works for which he had come to earth to perform. And he himself expressed in simple terms what it was. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So no longer do we live under law, but we live under the grace of God mediated to us through his Holy Spirit. So we have the power within us as born again, men and women, sons and daughters of the one true living God, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We have the capacity, we have the capacity to redeem the time, to make the most of every minute that God gives us this day, to live our lives as those who have the victory, the victory won by Jesus Christ at the cross. And yes, if it came down to it, 
I would die for my Jesus. Just as so many soldiers died for the cause in the First World War. We might not agree with the reasons for that war, but there were nine million soldiers who gave up their lives for what they believed in. Communities around the world spent the equivalent of $250 billion on a cause. We too are being called by God for a cause to redeem the time for the days are evil. Each one of us can redeem the time by living out our lives as Christians every moment of the day, by standing up against the evil that's in our own hearts, by standing up for God's principles through our thoughts, through our words and our deeds, in our workplace, in our community and even in our church. But the one thing we have going for us that perhaps is not going for all of those who are literally soldiers today is that we have the confidence of the truth of the word of God. We can have confidence that what God has spoken through the authors of his word is truth. And when fact doesn't line up with truth, ultimately it must. It must do that when we're in sickness, it must do that when we're in pain, it must do that when we're in suffering. The reason being that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Well, folks, before we have a little bit of community time, I have one more uh, photo to show you. And uh, this is taken in 1914, I think it, think it was. Yes, 1914. Cobble Creek School, Queensland. It's a, a class of school children with their teacher. Now, I don't know how well you can see the photo from there. Can you see anybody smiling? I couldn't find a happy face among them. I had a close look at the clothing they were wearing. You know what? These are a bunch of poor kids. In most cases, their dads will be off at the war. Their mums will be trying to uh, manage in the main farm properties. And the kids will be trying to be normal kids at school. We have come so far since then. You will never find, you know, even if you had a class full of children whose parents were on social welfare, you would never find a school class that looked like this in Queensland or Australia today. We have come a long way. And you know, it actually is the Christian foundation of this nation and of many other nations around the world that has enabled us to make the kind of progress we have made. We would never have been able to deal with the costs of the World War, of World War I or the influenza epidemic after that, if it wasn't for a Christian outlook that says things can be better. 
One of the most defining features of Christianity is the idea that through Christ we can raise our level. Not only can we raise our level of thinking, we can raise our level of living, not just spiritually speaking, not just soulishly speaking, but physically speaking as well. And one of the reasons why so many people were were willing to go to war in the First World War and in subsequent wars is to keep our country free. And it is actually only free nations that are able to prosper as our nation has prospered over many, many years now. So with those few thoughts, why don't we go and enjoy an Anzac biscuit and some great community time, knowing that we'll never be taking classroom photos like this in 2017. God bless you.